Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Show notes and additional episodes are available at kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog at comlawmonitor.com. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Hello, welcome to this month's episode of our first take of the FCC's uh, open meeting. Uh, today we'll be looking at items on the FCC's February 15th open meeting, and I'll be discuss uh, I'll be discussing the notice of proposed rulemaking, uh, looking at ex- expanding accessibility of emergence of the emergency alert system. Uh, and uh, Chip Yorkitis will be looking at the commission's report and order on uh, wireless microphone use, uh, as well as the um, notice of proposed rulemaking on facilitating capabilities for in-space servicing, assembly, and manufacturing. And uh, Jenny Wainwright will be looking at the Uh, Commission's report and order and further notice of proposed rulemaking on uh, robocalls and robotexts. So first, as to the Commission's notice of proposed rulemaking on uh, emergency alert, on the emergency alert system, on Thursday, the Commission unanimously adopted its uh, notice of proposed rulemaking seeking comment on ways to expand accessibility through multilingual Emergency Alert System, or EAS, alerts. The Notice of Proposed Rulemaking was released on Friday, February 16th. Uh, The Emergency Alert System, or EAS, is a national public warning system that provides alerts through TV and radio broadcasters, cable systems, and certain other service providers, such as direct broadcast satellite service providers. EAS alerts are generally used for severe weather events such as tornadoes and hurricanes, natural disasters, and civil emergencies, and are also used by federal agencies such as the National Weather Service and state and local governments. In addition, the EAS alerts may be used to provide immediate communications and information from the president during national emergencies through the presidential alerts system. In its February open meeting, the commission proposed rules that would facilitate multilingual EAS alerts through the use of pre-translated template messages to make alerts more widely accessible. This commission's proposal aligns with its October 2023 adoption of rules requiring participating wireless providers to make certain pre-translated wireless emergency alerts available in 13 of the most commonly spoken languages in the US in addition to English, and to make the wireless alerts available in American Sign Language. For wireless alerts on February 15th, the Public Safety and Homeland Security Bureau proposed uh, for comment 18 different pre-translated emergency alert templates. Uh, But let me give you some background on the EAS alerts. Um, EAS alerts are issued by alert originators, such as, for example, the National Weather Service, 
and distribute in, in one of two ways. The, in the first approach, an alert originator issues an EAS alert and, and it is distributed through a daisy chain among broadcast stations until all EAS participants in the relevant area receive and broadcast the alert to the public. This approach is generally known as the legacy EAS approach. In the second approach, alert originators use internet protocol-based messaging to distribute EAS alerts to EAS participants, delivering the alerts in a common alerting protocol or CAP using the FEMA's integrated public alert and warning system. This approach is generally known as the CAP approach and has been in place since 2015. With respect to multilingual alerts, under the legacy EAS approach, an alert originator is permitted to issue alerts in non-English languages, and EAS participants are permitted to translate and transmit EAS alerts into the, quote, primary language of the EAS participant, end quote. So such as Spanish for Spanish language stations, so long as the translations and tr transmissions are completed within the mandatory 15 minute window for EAS participants to relay the state and local EAS alert. In the CAP approach, alert originators have flexibility to distribute multilingual alerts and information. However, uh, the commission notes in the um, notice of proposed rulemaking that it has found only sparse and isolated efforts to relay multilingual alerts. And even in those instances, the multilingual alerts were mostly only relayed in Spanish and English. As a result, uh, the commission in the NPRM seeks comment on the feasibility of distributing EAS alerts in additional languages to increase accessibility. Those additional languages are Spanish, Chinese, Tagalog, Vietnamese, Arabic, French, Korean, Russian, Haitian Creole, German, Hindi, Portuguese, and Italian. And th these alerts would be in addition to the English alerts using a pre-translated template based on predefined emergency events. The commission proposes that the templates as well as associated translations of audio files and links for streaming would be stored on EAS devices and proposes that EAS participants would be required to transmit the template alerts to correspond to the participants programming content language. Therefore, to explain that a bit, as an example, where a participant transmits programming content in different languages on different ch channels, the participant would be required to use multiple pre-translated templates. In addition to trans transmitting the template alerts to correspond to the participant's programming content language, the commission proposes that EAS participants should also uh, could also elect to transmit alerts in additional language, uh, additional languages if they so elect. Therefore, for example, under the proposal, a participant may be required to transmit an alert in Spanish on a Spanish language station, but the commission proposes to allow participants to elect to also transmit the alert in an additional language, such as English, if the participant so elects. 
In addition, the Commission seeks comments on how alerts should be transmitted in the case of programming that is not one of the 13 languages I just identified. Um, under the Commission's proposal, uh, alert originators would trigger the use of one of the pre-translated templates through the use of a, an additional template event code incorporated into the existing EAS processes. Uh, in the NPRM, the Commission seeks comment on several aspects of its proposals. I'll discuss some of them here, uh, but uh, refer to the NPRM for a full list of the proposals and requests for comments. So in the NPRM, the Commission seeks comment on the efficiency of using pre-scripted visual messages from templates, inquiring whether generalized text lacking location and timeframes can adequately warn the public or whether it would be confusing. The NPRM contains several potential alternatives for visual messages, including the use of it and URL address where the public could obtain additional information or potentially requiring EAS providers to update templates to include location and time periods within the alert. The Commission also seeks comment on how variable scripts for location and time periods can be accommodated into the audio files noting that, quote, generating audio for scripts with variable information would effectively require use of TTS to capture each variation, uh, but it is unclear whether cost-effective non-English language TTS is reliable and accurate enough for emergency warning purposes at this time, end quote. With respect to American Sign Language, or ASL, the Commission seeks comment on how to develop video files for ASL template alerts. For example, the Commission asks whether video files for qualified ASL signers signing the template script for each template event could be developed and stored in the EAS device. And for audio files associated with the templates, the Commission proposes the use of pre-recorded audio files stored on the EAS devices, but seeks comments on the technical feasibility of such a requirement, looking at things like memory limits of the EAS device, for example. The Commission also seeks comment on the cost and technical requirements needed to accomplish its proposals. For example, would patches or memory updates be required to EAS devices? How long would that process take and how much would it cost uh, to update the EAS devices if needed. In addition, in the NPRM, the Commission proposes that direct broadcast satellite and digital satellite digital audio radio service providers would be exempt um, to the extent that a template is developed. Um, with the exception of the nation, nationwide national periodic test alerts. Uh, the Commission explains that this exemption is required because uh, most of these providers' footprints are nationwide, and generally EAS alerts are uh, limited in geographic scope. As to the content of the template event types, the Commission directs the Public Safety and Homeland Security Bureau to propose and seek, co seek comment on various sets of emergency alert messages covering the most time-sensitive events. Uh, as I mentioned, the Commission unanimously adapt adopted the um, NPRM in its 
at its Friday open meeting. However, I'd note in adopting the NPRM, Commissioner Carr commented uh, on the adoption, cautioning that the commission should be mindful that any requirements that are adopted don't go too far in terms of requiring translations within the system itself that would be cumbersome, slow to slow the process of delivering the alerts, or that would be technically difficult to implement. Comments on these proposals in the NPRM will be due 30 days after publication in the Federal Register, and reply comments will be due 60 days after publication. And now I will turn it over to Chip, who's looking at the Commission's report and order related to wireless microphone use. Chip? Um, thanks, Mike. Um... As Mike said, uh, I'm going to be talking about the order in docket 21115 uh, that uh, resulted in changes to the wireless microphone rules in part 74, as well as part 15 uh, of the commission. Uh, back in April 2021, the FCC adopted a notice of proposed rulemaking to revise the technical rules for Part 74 low-powered auxiliary stations or LPAS devices to permit wireless microphone systems called wireless multi-channel audio systems or WMAS to operate in the TV bands and most of the other Part 74 LPAS frequency bands that at that time were already supporting wireless mics on a licensed basis. The advantages of WMAS technology is that it permits more microphones per megahertz of spectrum, and it also uses a wider channelization than currently is permitted for wireless microphones under Part 74 and a more efficient operating protocol. These differences in combination advance more efficient spectrum use according to their proponents. Today, wireless mics can operate under Part 74 in a wide range of frequencies. A lot of these were adopted in 2015 when the commission implemented several changes to ensure sufficient spectrum would continue to be available for wireless mics following the um, incentive auction and broad, broadcast television band repacking, uh, which reduced the amount of spectrum that at that time was available for wireless mics. So the commission made rule changes to give wireless microphones greater access to the VHF broadcast television channels and increased opportunities for co-channel operations with television stations, expanding the eligibility for licensed wireless mic use of a four megahertz portion of the 600 megahertz duplex gap, and also to provide for new spectrum for wireless microphones in portions of the 900 megahertz, 1400 megahertz, and seven gigahertz bands. So that was what was done in 2015. Uh, the new order does not remove any of these opportunities, but instead introduces and approves a new technology and associated technical rules for wireless mics operating in most of the same spectrum bands. The uh, FCC also updated its existing part 74 and Part 15 technical rules for wireless mics, which already cross-referenced and incorporated certain European Telecommunications Standard Institute standards, or FC standards as they're better, to incorporate the latest version of those 
standards, including emission masks and spurious emissions limits. Finally, in this new report and order, the Commission updated the wireless microphone rules to reflect the end of the post-incentive auction transition period affecting wireless mics used in the television broadcast spectrum that was auctioned and repacked several years ago. So turning to the heart of this new order dealing with WMAS, the goal of the FCC was to enable another technology auction, increase wireless microphone spectral efficiency and enable more intense use. A key point here is that the FCC made clear that its rules should not, its new rules should not be construed to alter the existing spectrum rights or expectations regarding spectrum access and availability uh, of all other uh, authorized users uh, in the band that are accessible by wireless mic technologies, uh, whether those are broadcast licensees, white space device users, uh, the wireless mic users themselves, or others uh, that share these frequency bands. Thus, for example, uh, L-band wireless microphone rules in the 1435 to 1525 megahertz band that require advanced coordination from the Aerospace and Flight Test Radio Coordinating Council and the issuance of an electronic that ensures that wireless mics authorized in that band can only operate in the location at the time and on the frequencies coordinated will remain in place. This was not an overly controversial order. No party specifically objected to allowing WMAS as proposed in the NPRM, but there was some disagreement on a number of technical and operational issues, including which parties should be eligible to operate WMAS, the band where WMAS should be permitted to operate, and the appropriate power bandwidth and spectral efficiency requirements. Um, the existing licensing mechanisms and eligibility requirements under Part 74 of the rules were not changed and will apply to WMAS uh, licensed wireless microphone users. Uh, the FCC also adopted the WMAS definition in the 2021 ETSI standard with two modifications. The FCC did not include the term PMSE, uh, standing for Program Making and Special Events, which is not used in the Commission's rules, although it is used in other countries. And the Commission found the use of that term is not needed because the Part 74 rules already define the device categories to which the rules apply uh, as low power auxiliary stations. The FCC also excluded a phrase from the WMAS definition in the ETSI standard, which concerned the ability of WMAS to support three or more audio channels per megahertz. Since the commission found that three or more channels language was simply meant to be an example. At the same time in the new rules, the Commission did specify a similar spectral efficiency requirement, although it will not require WMAS to operate with at least three channels at all times. The new WMAS technology will be permitted 54 to 72 megahertz, 76 to 88 megahertz, and 174 to 216 megahertz. WMAS will also be permitted in the UHF TV band in 470 and 608 megahertz as well as the 653 to 657 megahertz 
segment of the 600 megahertz duplex gap. And then finally, WMAS will be permitted in the 900 megahertz channels that are available for wireless licensed wireless mics, uh, the L-band or 15, 1435 to 1525 megahertz, and then sub-bands in the so-called six gigahertz band, specifically 6875 to 6900 megahertz and 7100 to 7125 megahertz. Licensed WMAS systems will be subject to the same maximum power levels that are currently permitted in the corresponding wireless microphone bands. Now, there had been some pushback, as I mentioned, from commenters about permitting WMAS in the last uh, or the highest two bands I mentioned, the uh, 6875 to 6900 and 7100 to 7125 megahertz band. These parties were concerned about potential harmful interference. But the commission found that the potential for interference from WMAS mics would actually be less than the potential from conventional wireless mics already permitted in the same bands. And this was because the same maximum power uh, would be spread over the larger bandwidth in the WMAS mics, which would result in a lower power spectral density uh, in comparison with uh, the narrowband uh, conventional wireless mics. So the commission dismissed these operations in these seven gigahertz subbands as baseless. The FCC did note that some parties argued that the 6875 to 6900 megahertz and 7100 to 7125 megahertz bands could be removed from the list of frequencies available for licensed wireless microphones for a different reason. Uh, these uh, parties challenging use of wireless mics in those subbands noted that they aren't heavily used by wireless mics at this time, even though authorized. And wireless mics operating at these frequencies may have a limited range as compared to mics in other lower frequency bands. But the commission concluded that disallowing wireless mics on this basis was beyond the scope, the rulemaking, and the report and order. The commission also disagreed with arguments that it should prohibit WMAS from operating in the UHF TV band or make WMAS operations secondary to narrowband wireless microphones. The commission explained that it wanted to create an expansive opportunity for the, the deployment of WMAS, and so it dismissed those concerns, noting that it did not want to create a situation where a single licensed narrowband wireless microphone user could preclude a more efficient WMAS system from operating in the same frequencies because the WMAS system is secondary. Several of the permitted bands, including the TV bands, allow for WMAS channel sizes of six megahertz or greater, while the smaller bands, uh, those in um, 600 megahertz segment of the duplex gap and the 900 megahertz bands, each contain only three to four megahertz of spectrum. The commission did not require a minimum bandwidth for WMAS so as to not preclude WMAS technical advancements that could allow for more efficient operation at smaller bandwidths. And the commission allowed that WMS systems may use bandwidths as great as 20 megahertz, depending upon the available spectrum in any given frequency band that is authorized. 
it rejected calls from some manufacturers to limit WMAS systems to a maximum bandwidth of one or two megahertz to enable coexistence or better coexistence with narrowband wireless microphones. The FCC implemented its proposal to require WMAS devices to operate entirely within a single six megahertz channel and not to span parts of two adjacent uh, TV channels. It found that this would promote more efficient spectrum sharing between narrowband wireless microphones, WMAS, and white space devices. As a result, WMAS devices operating in the four megahertz portion of the 600 megahertz duplex gap will be limited to the four megahertz width of that band. Outside of the TV bands and the duplex gap, the new rules will permit wireless mics to operate, as I mentioned, uh, on larger bandwidths up to 20 megahertz. Finally, the report and order also adopted rules permitting unlicensed, albeit lower powered WMAS systems under port 15 in the same frequencies that support other unlicensed wireless mics today. The same definition of WMAS will apply as in the, in the licensed bands, and a similar framework will also apply that applies to the licensed WMAS, although of course, unlicensed devices will not require an authorization. They will require certification under part two, of course. The FCC concluded that the full benefits of WMAS cannot be realized unless it allows WMAS to operate on an unlicensed basis in addition to a licensed basis uh, on something of parity. Consistent with its action with respect to Part 74 licensed WMAS, the FCC will require unlicensed WMAS to comply with the emission mask and spurious emission limits in the 2021 ETSI standards. Now I'm going to turn it over to uh, my colleague, uh, Jenny Wainwright, who's going to speak to us about the uh, robocall and notice of proposed rulemaking. Thanks, Chip. Okay, so the item that I'm going to be covering today is a report and order and further notice of proposed rulemaking that includes a series of changes related to the Telephone Consumer Protection Act, or the TCPA for short. So just by way of background, the TCPA is a 30 plus year old statute that generally uh, prohibits auto dialed or pre-recorded calls to consumers unless a consumer has consented to receive such calls. Uh, the statute and its implementing rules are of course much more nuanced, but I don't wanna delve too much into that uh, for today's purposes. So these most recent rule changes are focused on expanding consumers ability to revoke consent to receive calls and texts and builds on the FCC's other recent TCPA actions, namely the adoption of a one-to-one -one consent rule that it implement, implemented in December, and a recent ruling uh, that, that calls to consumers using artificial intelligence technologies are considered, quote, artificial or pre-recorded messages, and therefore subject to regulation under the TCPA. The specific rule changes in this month's uh, report and order address three issues related to revocation of consent. One, what constitutes a, quote, reasonable means for a consumer to revoke consent? Two, clarification of the requirements for confirmatory opt-out texts. And three, the scope of revocation of consent. And I'll discuss each of these in turn momentarily. 
Of course, one major question um, for affected parties here is going to be the timing for the implementation of these changes. At the moment, that's a bit unclear because most of the rules adopted will be subject to review by the Office of Management and Budget, um, except for one specific change that will go into effect sooner, and I'll highlight that when we get there. Uh, but the OMB review basically puts a pause on effectiveness of these rule changes until six months after that review is complete. Um, finally, the item also includes a further notice, notice of proposed rulemaking on whether the TCPA applies to robocalls and robotexts from wireless providers to their own subscribers, as well as a possible mandate for automated opt-out mechanism on every call that contains an artificial or pre-recorded voice. So turning first to the rule changes on revocation of consent. So the first, the order codifies the FCC's longstanding position that a called party may revoke consent, quote, by using any reasonable method, unquote. This reasonable method, method standard was established in a 2015 declaratory ruling that was the subject of vigorous litigation, including on the issue of revocation of consent, which was ultimately upheld by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. To provide further clarification as to what constitutes a reasonable means of revoking consent, the order puts forth the following specific requirements. Um, so first, any of the following are going to be considered reasonable means per se for a consumer to revoke consent. That would be uh, revoking consent through an automated interactive voice or key press activated opt-out mechanism if on a call, replying to an incoming text message with the words stop, quit, end, revoke, opt-out, cancel, or unsubscribe, or revoking consent pursuant to a website or telephone number designated by the caller to process opt-out requests. In addition to that, um, and I'm gonna quote here for one second, quote, if a reply to an incoming text message uses words other than stop, quit, end, revoke, opt-out, cancel, or unsubscribe, the caller must treat that reply text as a valid revocation request, if a reasonable person would understand those words to have conveyed a request to revoke consent, unquote. And then in addition to that, if a, if a caller is using a text protocol that doesn't allow for replies, the sender, quote, must provide a clear and conspicuous disclosure on each, each text to the consumer that two-way texting is not available due to technical limitations of the texting protocol and clearly, clearly and conspicuously provide on each text a reasonable alternative way to revoke consent, end quote. Callers will not be permitted to designate any exclusive means to request revocation of consent and will be required to honor revocations made in a reasonable manner within 10 business days of receipt of the request. Now, if a consumer attempts to revoke consent using a method or language other than what's prescribed in the rules or in the event of a dispute as to the revocation, the order establishes a standard of review based on the, quote, totality of circumstances. But there is a rebuttable presumption that the consumer has properly revoked consent if the consumer can, quote, produce evidence that such a request has been made, end quote. So by way of example here, the order cites to comments made by the American Bankers Association suggesting that a non-standard text response such as, I do not want to receive any more texts, 
should not be considered a reasonable means to revoke consent because it cannot be read by automated processes. The FCC in the order explained that for messages like these, quote, the finder of fact will look to the totality of the facts and circumstances surrounding the specific situation, including, for example, whether the consumer had a reasonable expectation that they could effectively communicate their request for revocation to the caller in that circumstance and whether the caller can implement the mechanisms to effectuate a requested revocation without incurring undue burdens, end quote. Um, so that's sort of the broad brush on the reasonable means of revoking consent. The order next turns to confirmatory opt-out texts. And here it codifies a previous FCC determination that a quote, one-time text message confirming a request to revoke consent from receiving any further calls or text messages does not violate the TCPA as long as the as the confirmation text merely confirms the text recipient's revocation request and does not include any marketing or promotional information and is the only additional message sent to the called party after the receipt of revocation request, end quote. The order also generally requires the confirmatory text to be sent within five minutes of receipt of the opt-out request or else the sender will have to make a showing that such delay was reasonable. Um, additionally, if the recipient has consented to several categories of text messages from a particular sender, the confirmation message sent back to the consumer can request clarification as to whether that revocation request was meant to encompass all messages, but the sender must cease all further texts for which consent is required absent further clarification that the recipient wishes to continue to receive certain messages and a lack of response to the confirmation text should be treated as a revocation of consent for all robocalls and robotexts from the senders. Um, finally, the timing of the confirmation text does not impact the sender's obligation to honor the revocation request within 10 business days as stated earlier in the order. Now here, I just wanna pause and note that this particular rule change, the, um, the rule change on opt-out texts is not subject to an OMB review and is expected to become effective 30 days after the order is published in the Federal Register. So moving on to the next um, item covered in the order, that's the scope of revocation of consent. The order acknowledges that certain types of calls and texts do not require consent and clarifies that when a consumer revokes consent with regard to telemarketing robocalls or robotexts, the caller can continue to reach the consumer pursuant to an exempted informational call, which does not require consent unless and until the consumer separately expresses an intent to opt out of these exempted calls. But if the revocation request is made directly in response to one of those informational calls or text, that does constitute an opt-out request from all further non-emergency calls and texts, and they have to stop. Um, additionally, when revoke, sorry, excuse me. Additionally, when consent is revoked in any reasonable manner, that revocation extends to both calls and texts regardless of the medium used. So for example, if a consumer revokes consent using a reply text messages, the consent is deemed revoked um, not only as to robotexts, but also robocalls from that caller. Um, and then finally, 
so that covers the um, the actual rule changes. And then, as I mentioned before, there's a further notice of proposed rulemaking included in the item. Now, here, the F, excuse me, here the FCC is looking at two specific issues. Um, one, it asks whether the TCPA applies to robocalls and robotexts from wireless providers to their own subscribers. This in turn leads to questions about whether a wireless carrier would have to get specific consent from their subscribers to send auto-dialed or pre-recorded messages, um, or whether they satisfy that TCPA consent obligation pursuant to the, quote, unique nature of the relationship and service that they provide to their subscribers, end quote. Um, and of course, would such consent be uh, based on that relationship extend to robocalls and robotexts that extend advertising and marketing? That's another question that the FCC is seeking comment on. Um, lastly, on this matter, the FCC proposes that wireless subscribers, as any other called parties, be able to revoke such consent by communicating a revocation of consent request to their wireless provider and that such request must be honored. Um, so the other issue that the FCC is seeking comment on in the notice of proposed rulemaking is a proposal by the National Consumer Law Center to expand its rules on automated opt-out texts to require an automated opt-out mechanism on every call that contains an artificial or pre-recorded voice, not just those that constitute advertising or telemarketing. So initial comments in response to the uh, notice of proposed rulemaking will be due 30 days after the item is published in the Federal Register, and reply comments will be due 15 days after that or 45 days after publication. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Chip, who's going to cover our last item for today. Thanks, Jenny. Um, so uh, glad to be back with everybody. Uh, I'm going to shift now to uh, the subject of the Commission's Space Innovation Docket uh, and its sister docket dealing with facilitating capabilities for in-space servicing, assembly, and manufacturing, uh, which is known by the acronym ISAM uh, or ISAM. Uh, and these are dockets numbers 22271 and 22272. Uh, at the Commission's open meeting uh, on the 15th, it adopted a notice of proposed rulemaking, which envisions a new comprehensive yet flexible framework for licensing space stations engaged in ISAM, ISAM activities. Uh, and this NPRM reflects input the commission received from its 2022 notice of inquiry on ISAM, which we covered in an earlier podcast that year. The commission contemplates a framework that will allow applicants for any type of ISAM activity to apply for a U.S. license uh, or if authorized in other countries, uh, for mar they could apply for market access. Um, and this will support future, this framework will support future regulations for uh, specific ISAM activities as the industry develops. The FCC recognizes that it is only one of several agencies charged with regulating and overseeing commercial activities in space in the United States. It has been a participating agency in developing the ISAM national strategy and also a participant in several interagency consortia. 
While there are several pending legislative proposals to shift the regulatory framework uh, and jurisdiction uh, over commercial space activities, the FCC uh, has decided to move forward within the scope of the jurisdiction it believes it has uh, to take action and to do so in tandem with other government efforts. Um, in that vein, the FCC plans to uh, cooperate uh, or, or defer, actually, uh, to the efforts of NASA to develop and implement uh, planetary protection policies. Planetary protection typically encompasses the policies and practices designed to protect celestial bodies from contamination by Earth life and protect the Earth's biosphere from potential contamination from returning spacecraft. There's a few science fiction movies that could come out of that, I guess. Um, the NPRM tentatively concludes that the FCC's proposed licensing framework for ISAM space stations should not include independent review and action from the commission on applicants' planetary protection plans. So what does the commission do in this NPRM? Succinctly, it proposes to modify its Part 25 rules to create a licensing framework specific to ISAM space stations for uh, licensing commercial space station activity. The NPRM proposes to apply the Commission's existing orbital debris mitigation requirements to ISAM space stations, and rather than adopt any spectrum allocations for ISAM communications uh, or non-communication spectrum uses such as radar, the FCC will accept applications and address them on a case-by-case -case basis. Finally, for ISAM space stations not providing commercial ISAM servicing activity, the FCC proposes to maintain its Part 5 experimental licensing rules as an option for certain ISAM activity. The scope of this rulemaking is arguably very broad, and much of the rulemaking focuses on defining the scope of ISAM that will be subject to the new flexible framework the Commission eventually adopt. The proposed definition of an ISAM space station is as follows, quote, a space station that has the primary purpose of conducting in-space servicing, assembly, and or manufacturing activities used on orbit on the surface of celestial bodies and or in transit between those regimes. Servicing activities include, but are not limited to, in-space inspection, life extension, repair, refueling, alteration and orbital transfer of a client space object, including collection and removal of debris on orbit. <clears throat> Assembling activities involve the construction of space systems in space using pre-manufactured components. <clears throat> Finally, manufacturing activities involve the transformation of raw or recycled materials into components, products, or infrastructure in space. Quote. The NPRM asks whether this broad proposed definition is actually too broad so as to create confusion uh, whether more traditional space stations are included within the scope of ISAM. The FCC envisions an ISAM licensing process that draws from both traditional Part 25 licensing and the recently adopted streamlined process of satellites and spacecraft with some exemptions. 
some of the principal exemptions proposed are to exempt all applications for ICAM space station licensing from processing run requirements that apply to NGSO or non-geostationary orbit like operations and to also exempt them from first come first served requirements for geostationary orbit like operations. These exemptions uh, would be conditioned uh, in the commission's tentative proposal uh, on applicants certifying that operations of the space stations will be compatible with existing operations in the authorized frequency bands and with the submission of a narrative description to demonstrate spectrum sharing capabilities are technically possible and the ISAM operations will not materially constrain future space station entrants from using the authorized frequency bands. As another exemption, the FCC proposes to defer the posting of shorty bonds by ISAM applicants one year after the grant of a license, uh, consistent with the FCC's treatment of small satellites. So these exemptions show that the FCC seeks to use flexibility as ISAM capabilities develop. The NPRM also seeks to comment on the interrelationship between servicing space stations and client satellites and spacecraft. For example, must client station authorizations require modification to interact with and enable space stations to perform servicing functions? As ISAM capabilities are nascent and still developing, the FCC tentatively, tentatively concludes in the public interest to assess whether a client space station operator should obtain a license modification uh, on a case-by-case -case review uh, rather than to have the commission try to lay out all possible scenarios that would require such license modifications. The Commission also seeks comment how to regulate, if needed, licensed ISAM stations interacting with non-U.S. licensed space stations. For client space stations licensed outside the United States, uh, <clears throat> both with or without U.S. market access grants, the NPRM proposes to require that the ISAM license applicant provide the client stations ITU filings and UN uh, or United Nations registration information, as well as a discussion of regulatory requirements to which the client satellite and its operators are subject. And it will also require a uh, description of the status of any regulatory approvals for the client satellite's participation in the servicing activity. The NPRM also covers the issue of debris mitigation. The FCC tentatively concludes to apply the orbital debris mitigation requirements other space station operators are subject to, to ISAM operators as well, while seeking comment on whether the current rules are sufficient to protect the orbital environment from additional risks that ISAM activities may pose. The FCC also seeks comment on the role of active debris removal and whether ISAM stations engaged in ADR, active debris removal, could be subject to the same processes and procedures for authorization as other ISAM space stations or whether special rules.
the commission found that various communications activities in support of ISAM can potentially operate within several existing service allocations. And therefore, it proposes to review ISAM operators for frequency use on a case-by-case -case basis rather than adopt any new spectrum allocations. This is consistent with the FCC's process for reviewing requests for frequency use for small satellites and small spacecraft. Similarly, the FCC proposes not to limit service allocation designations that might be possible for ISAM operations so long as the applicant's requested operations can justifiably fit within the service allocation definition, which will be assessed on a case-by-case -case basis. This is consistent with an earlier recognition that small satellite operators may engage in a variety of operations. In short, the FCC proposes to maintain as much flexibility as possible for ISAM operators to gain authorizations for their operations, as long as that does not interfere with other radio communications and justifiably fits within the proposed service allocation definitions. Comments on the ISAM NPRM will be due 45 days after the NPRM is published in the Federal Register, and the reply comments will be due 75 days after publication. While the interval between the release of an NPRM and publication in the Federal Register varies, it is pretty safe to say that comments on the ISAM NPRM will be due no earlier than late April, and replies will not be due before late May. But stay tuned to the Federal Register for more precise dates. We want to thank you today for joining our Full Spectrum podcast on the FCC's February open meeting. The next open meeting is on March 14th, and we will be covering the principal items that are voted on and adopted in that meeting. We do hope that you will join us, and we thank you for attending our class today. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.